You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Associate Professor Marina Harvey, an academic researcher and Director of Academic Development Services at the University of New South Wales. Over the past decade, Marina and her team have researched student reflection and how it is used to support learning and teaching. In this episode, we look at the value of higher order thinking skills, such as reflection, in a rapidly changing world, and how reflection might be viewed as being not only a cognitive process, but also a somatic or whole of body experience. We explore traditional cognitive, technical and analytical approaches to reflection, such as writing, and compare some alternatives, including those tapping into students' imagination, creativity and emotion, where students are guided to express the inexpressible. Here's my conversation with Marina Harvey. Nice to be speaking with you again, Marina. I'm interested to know a little bit about your background. Where where have you come from, or you know what 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 did you study at university, for example? That and uh, and other research pursuits that have led you to where we're at at the moment. My undergraduate degree is something that often surprises people. I've had a very long interest in education, so I started off in teacher education. And that degree was in home economics education. So, wow, I did not know. I could demonstrate how to make 17 varieties of scone if you want, but it's it's sad. Don't overwork the dough. No, that's right, with the gluten and the flour. But there are just so many wonderful things about that subject. And if that subject were still being offered in schools across Australia, the world would be a better place. People would know about budgeting because we've got all these issues of students who can't budget anymore, young adults. They'd know about good nutrition, how to make a choice. If you're on a budget, do you get your can of baked beans or your can of spaghetti? Um, And my real interest in home economics was in family resource management. So how families make decisions throughout their lives to best adapt to all the stresses. And again, if we were still covering that, wouldn't we all be better off? We'd be all so much better prepared. That's where I started. Well, I guess that's um, that's kind of, I guess that sort of subject areas had its own transition over the years with, you know, the kind of, I guess, what would they call it now? Um, Oh, just like design and technology is part of that. That's part of it. But then there's sort of the cooking, cooking and sewing, but the cooking part of it. Anyway, but enough about that aspect. You didn't stick with that as such. You kind of, I guess you moved on or you I moved did, into uh, what happened? Teacher education as me being the lecturer supporting the teachers through their degrees for home economics, which transmorphed, as you have rightly predicted, into the technology subjects. And but there was also a subject called community and family studies and life management studies. And as a student myself, and then as these students over the years, one thing they had in common, we always expected them to reflect on their learning. And that is something that has really been 
popping up over my career. Down the track, um, I had a child and then I started to wonder, well, how does anybody do it all? How do, how do, and I'm talking about a human child because, you know, we might talk about my dog and my cat and things like that, but a human child. And I wondered how people balanced all of this together. And, of course, this was a subject that would come up in HSD studies. And by then, you know, I'm supporting the teachers who are teaching this. I'm on the board of studies, on the exam committees. We're writing about it and I'm faced with it in a very practical sense. And I thought I need to explore this. And so I started looking at postgraduate studies. And from a master's still in adult education, I then went on into a PhD, lots of focus on educational psychology, because I was very interested in motivation and really good curriculum design and how all of those things link together, how people learn. And ultimately, I ended up teaching in that area before a new door opened. And that was the area of academic development. So supporting the academics in university to be good teachers and to understand how students learn. Because as you're, I'm sure, aware of, Mark, academics need a PhD to get a position in university. And in general, there's no requirement for them to have any training in learning and teaching. But that's the role that I have embraced with a great love now. So just out of interest, what was the nature, like you kind of touched on a little bit, but with the, your PhD, what was the, the kind of question or the, the kind of area that you were researching? How do people with young children balance work and family? And I looked at educational settings. So I had a cohort across a whole primary school across a secondary school and across a university campus. And I compared those three. Needless to say, the very first paper I presented at a conference was a comparison of the three sites subtitled, who would want to work at a university? Question mark. Wow, that's a provocative question. And I guess, has thing, have things changed over, since then? Like, are they still the universal kind of things popping up or it's completely different? I don't think things have changed in a positive direction. I don't think there's been many improvements because we're looking at workloads in university that staff, when I read, and I serve, I'm talking about surveying, you know, 800 people and interviewing 80 families, big data sets. Uh, People at universities were very much overworked and they still are. And the trade-off for them, the, the crowning glory that kept people in jobs at universities was a sense of flexibility that I could, in fact, maybe, you know, work from home on a day. And for that, they were willing to stay in a university role and get paid less than if they were in another role. An example... Oh, yeah, no worries. Yes, sorry. An example was, because I did a lot of pilot testing as well, I was thinking of one member of staff who had been headhunted to go for a role in industry, double the salary, 
and that person said they wouldn't leave the university because of the flexibility and they had work-based childcare at the university. Yeah, it's very holistic in its approach. You know, it's not just about the job, it's the all the other stuff, the context, I guess. Yeah, but the universities did bad on every other measure. Hmm. So you, you told us a little bit about this job role of academic developer, and I guess that's surprising to a lot of people um, that that kind of go deeper into higher ed. It's always an assumption that, oh, yeah, academics and, you know, they're teaching at university, they must know, you know, they must have a teaching background, but not necessarily. So what happened in that situation for you? Was it, a, you know, hit the ground running or was it, you know, oh. I remember I had studied education all the time. All my postgraduate research was in adult education. So I had a really firm foundation. Can you give and us that, some of those adult learning adult learning principles? Just, to, you know, just for a laugh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, having a student-centred approach. So when you're designing a class, a lesson, think about what it means for the student experience. Will you be able to say, like, actively engage them? You know, you could think of some of those classic stereotypical university lecturers who get up there in a large auditorium and some of them have been known to just read for one or two hours from their notes. And... Mm. That's very old-fashioned and it may not be so engaging for the students. So uh, a lot of the theories would say, don't be so the sage on the stage, so didactic. Engage your student in some ways. So student learning, active learning, um, focus on what are the key learning outcomes you want to achieve. Don't focus on, I've got 10 pages of content because as we know, by the time students get, graduate, that content is probably redundant in the, today's world. Things change. Yeah. So how, how like, how, how did you, uh, what were the dynamics like with you in, in terms of, um, you know, were you working with lots of different academics and, or were you running training sessions or how, what did it look like? Both. So, yes, work with lots of academics individually in small groups as well as run Um, workshops, but also responsible. In my first role, I was responsible for developing postgraduate subjects. So we actually had a a fully accredited postgraduate program that academics could study learning and teaching in higher education. Yeah, like a kind of professional development for them. I guess that's or? the yeah that's the extreme end where they get okay. they graduate with a graduate certificate or a masters or go right. on to do another PhD in learning and teaching. But yes, we also ran lots of and pretty good uh, professional development courses on university teaching, ranging from a one-hour course to a forty-hour more formal structured course. Now I'm assuming that reflection was a part of that in terms of you know or you know it it, it was. <laughs> An element. Well, the funny thing is, when I was first starting my new role as an academic developer, I was called into the office of the manager at the time and told, you'll be teaching at a postgraduate level on a subject called critically reflective practice. 
And I said, oh, okay, so tell me something more about the course. And they said, oh, well, somebody else has taught on this in the past and they're leaving the university, you will be inheriting this course. So I immediately set up a meeting with the previous um, leader of that subject and asked them to share what does this course involve? Are there, have you got some notes? Have you got a unit outline, subject outline? And that person just looked at me and laughed and said, oh, you don't need any of that. You'll be fine. You know more about reflection than I do. So I walked away with nothing. And it was a great catalyst because I locked myself in my study for two weeks and said, how am I going to do this? It was a great freeing experience. So I said, I'm going to recreate this subject now. I'm going to start from scratch. What does this all mean? Why should somebody even study it? What does the research tell us about it? What does the research say? How do we reflect? How do we go about it? How does it support our students? How does it support us as teachers? So it was great. Started from scratch and had a wonderful time. And then what that process, um, you know, you're kind of reading and get putting resources together. What what did that end up as, or you know, how did it all start to play out? So it was an accredited course in the master's program, and I was chuffed, and I went in there full of excitement and enthusiasm, and I had a cohort of students who were very sophisticated that mm. all most of them already had is that PhDs. a code word yeah sophisticated and we had medical subspecialists and all you know it was fascinating and in the second week one of the students looked at me it was an, i was having classes in the evening body language is a lot they had their arms crossed and oh, he yes. said, oh, Marina, you keep talking about this reflection. How do you even know it works? Why should we study it? Prove it to me. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I went off looking for the evidence. And that's what started me on my journey of many years over a decade researching reflection and its role in learning and teaching. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So then what happened? I started seriously looking at all the research of what is the impact on student learning of reflective practice? Because I was determined to get back to my student and say, here is all the evidence, uncross your arms, open your arms and accept it and I didn't find it. So I, I looked and I looked. What I found were many, many, many studies that showed that, yes, if students are asked, does reflection help them with their learning, they say it does. The studies were small scale normally, very few large scale, which means lots of students and all teachers involved. Um, qualitative you know asking questions and getting students to write a little bit yes after the effect not in real time after i've studied a subject then if i'm asked does reflection help i'll say oh yeah it helps so in terms of methodology so the real nitty-gritty of research 
they weren't as robust. They weren't as tough and powerful in their results. And that made me think, well, we need to really start doing research on this. And that's what I started with actually one of the students in my class. So we started. Yeah. Is this like. <laughs> so we started. Okay, so we started uh, thinking about what we could do. And we ended up working with students in four different countries, studying the same subject. Oh, wow. Yeah. And. Yeah, we've got, it's a large number of students, it's great. Asking them about reflection and really strictly looking at how does it relate to their learning outcomes, their grades, I guess. This is what I was going to ask um, earlier is when when you stumble upon, when you go looking for something in the area of uh, academic research and you don't find stuff that's that's kind of a good thing isn't it because it's like a gap in the um what do you call that the gap in the research i suppose speaking like an academic that's exactly what you call it oh no (laughs) yeah a gap in the research so that that's like kind of oh this is intriguing and i'm going to find out and look for that evidence so this is where you're kind of getting a bit bit of momentum so with this idea of the four oh I can't remember the the exact details, but the, the the research that you were doing with your students, can you tell us a little bit about that? So this is done with a dear colleague of mine at one of the universities, um, Associate Professor Chris Bauman, who teaches in marketing. And he had a, a unique opportunity. This is what makes it special, I guess. He was teaching the same subject, but at different times in different sites. Oh, right. So it's like a scientific, like you always have that the control. Well, we didn't have the control because they were, we were allowing students to reflect. He built that into his program, students were reflecting at the four sites. You can't have a control ethically, Mark, because if oh, I okay. believe, I have an assumption, I have many assumptions that I make, and they're evidence-based, they're based on the research. And one is that I believe that reflection supports students with their learning, it helps them, right? So ethically, I can't go into classes and say, I'm going to want you to reflect, to help you, support you with a good learning experience, and in another class say, you're not going to reflect, knowing that, I believe it would help them. That would dis- I believe that would disadvantage them. So ethically, oh, right. you can't do it. So that complicates this research process and is one explanation of why it's been so difficult for people to do in the past. So you, you've kind of got a bit of momentum with that, these processes. So what, what happened next? What happened with your, you know, you kind of, you were dealing with particular academic and he had different classes um he had a model he developed a model for What's a model? reflection a model is in this case a simple set of questions that he would ask his students to prompt or guide their reflective practice okay so yeah specific to his subject so a few questions because 
you need to support the reflective process. Students, no one's just going to do it. You just say, go and reflect. So somehow you have to support it. And he had developed a series of questions. And I would actually go to the first lecture of his classes, but not overseas, unfortunately. I wasn't flown there. But I would video record it and do a little opening to invite them to take part of our research. I would tell them the reason why we're doing it. I believe it works. We need more evidence. And then leave it up to them. It was completely voluntary if they took part in the reflection. It was not assessed. So they weren't getting a mark for any reflective activities. And that's, that's a an thing, important isn't it? point. Yeah, it's a thing for learners. What's the, I mean, you know, it's pretty obvious to someone like me, but just for the general person, what, why is that a thing? That it's, it's a thing because we know that assessment drives learning, that students in a class, in a subject, first thing they do when they land in that class is, what do I have to do? What do I have to hand in? What tasks do I need to complete? And people believe that students, often won't do anything extra or anything more unless there's a mark attached to it. So this approach to reflection was very different because we know now, I know, thousands of courses of subjects ask their students to reflect and they do so because the students hand in some reflective task and get marks for it. Here, it was quite different because my friend Chris, my co-researcher and colleague, didn't agree with it. I have never agreed with it because I know that if you ask somebody to reflect and hand in that writing, they will maybe change what they're writing to try and appease or placate, entice <laughs> you as an assessor. Yeah. I don't know. That's a um, thing as well, yes. So, it, yes, they can hand things in, but you have to really think about how you go about assessing that and what they hand in. It's kind of complicated territory in a way. It sort of has to be done in a particular way by the sounds of it. It's a human system, but you can't just kind of barge in there with your clipboard and your ruler. You've got to sort of go for measuring, I guess. Um, so tell us more about how it played out. So I spoke to the students very openly and said it's my belief. We're looking for more evidence about the role of reflection and that it's completely voluntary. And out of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students across the different sites, I think it was about 98% of students shared some reflective writing with us. Unbelievable. Re that's really high, I guess, in terms of you don't always get such high numbers. It's extremely high. And I still am surprised just talking about it now that it happened. And I don't know whether it was the fact that we were just open with them, we invited them. Um, you know, I did say I my assumption, I believed it would support them with their learning and they thought that might be a good thing, but it worked. And so, what, so what we did they ended tell you? up. Oh, yep. They told us a lot. They told us a lot. Um, so we have 
tens of thousands of words and more because we've got them to even do more than that. We even got them to think about how would they, on reflection, how would they assess their own learning and we're just investigating that now actually. Just started work on that Friday afternoon last week. Um, so it's not just what they told us, it's also investigating what it all means. One of the big surprising things, because we were trying to something called code it, like break down their writing into different themes or topics, you know, in trying to understand what it meant. And there are actually people out there who've come out with guides, they call them taxonomies, you know, how to code people's writing on reflection. And we were applying that and it just wasn't working. There was something missing. And, you know, so we started playing around. We actually coded 200 of the student responses and we weren't happy. We said, something Sounds missing. like there was a little reflection going on with the uh, research team. <laughs> oh, you got it. You've got it right. That's exactly, we practice what we preach. And what was missing was that nearly every student, no matter what they were reflecting on, whether it's a subject, the group work they, they participated in, the impact on their learning, no matter, they were quite emotional. Okay, that's, that's interesting. It's interesting because in the past, when people try to code or, you know, categorise reflection, it's always been by levels of how people think, the cognitive element. How deep is the thinking? And there had been an assumption, and I won't go into all that detail, that if you were emotional about your learning... You're not a deep cognitive thinker. And what we're finding when we were going through the process is that people were very detailed, deep, sophisticated in their thinking and emotional. Now, it that wasn't was either a, or. It, it was wasn't. So we then had to develop our own coding system, our own taxonomy, which we called EmoCog, that right. allows you to identify the level of emotion and cognition. And the big finding was that the emotion was there at every level. You can't separate. Reflection, and this is another one of my assumptions when I talk about these assumptions, is a somatic whole of body experience. It is not just the thinking. It Somatic, we mean it is also the emotions. You can have a very strong emotional reaction to a reflective activity, positive or negative. You can have a very physical activity. You know, people say, oh, my stomach turned or my heart raced and so forth. And I think that's a really important insight. So how do you kind of start to quantify some of this? Like you were saying about coding and that sort of coding, looking for what the responses have in them, but then I guess it must be challenging territory to kind of try and wrangle it or, you know, get a hold on it, see, try and find out what's happening and what patterns are there and what's going on. Yeah, to it's research. fun. 
It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Well, tell we us went a bit back. More. We went back like seventy years in time. So it's let's do the time warp again. That sort of thing. We went back to an original publication by Bloom's and his colleagues. Oh, because so, he as had, in Bloom's taxonomy. Yes, volume one focused oh, wow. on the cognitive domain. There are other volumes in the series. There's a whole volume on the affective or emotional domain, and people have not have embraced the cognitive. They've written and drawn charts and beautiful triangles and all sorts of things to explain that we need to think of the cognitive elements of learning and the emotion has been neglected in the research for decades and decades and decades. So we went back to that original work and we used that to inspire our coding. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, EmoCog, what was that again? <laughs> Recognising emotion as well as cognition and thinking, yeah, in, in reflection. So, as I said, it aligns with my assumption that reflection is a somatic whole-of-body experience. And if that's the case, are we okay to continue with our traditional practices from so many decades ago that focus on cognitive onlys. So traditionally, students are asked to write their reflective thoughts, to journal their reflections, what have they learnt, what could they improve in the future and so forth, writing, 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 which makes a lot of sense because even before computers, a pen and a paper are cheap, accessible resources for everybody. You know, it's easy to do as a teacher. It's easy to engage equitably as a student. And we've hung on to that. And that's the most common form of reflection in higher ed in the world. Uh, However. Yeah, what's that however? I knew there was going to be a however. What does EmoCog say? There's emotion, there's more than just cognition involved. So if we're relying on these traditional approaches, are we doing the right thing by our students? Because what about the rest of their learning that encompasses more than just the cognitive? And think about Australia, you know, our university sector is rapidly changing and that includes our students. We've opened it up. So many more students are entering university education and that body of students is becoming more and more diverse. So it's only right as a good educator that I think, well, I need to acknowledge that diversity and offer more diverse forms of reflecting with my students. Yes, if they prefer the writing, the cognitive approach, let them do it. But let's start thinking of other approaches as well. So what are some of those? And do we always have to think about them? Can we, you know, is it um, what else is going on? What other options are there for reflecting? 
I've been very much um, influenced by arts-based research. That is, that's has, a bold you know, statement. Really, <laughs> it's nice. Well, it, it's 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 lovely saying that the many forms of art can be used in the reflective process. So if you look at history, you know, I've said we've had this cognitive approach, and even within that, it was stuck in a very technical, analytical approach, which lots of university colleagues are comfortable with because that's how you do your PhD, right? I analyse something, I'm very rational about it, and here's how I do it. And that's how reflection started. And you had people like Kolb and that who were famous researchers in the area. Then it became a bit more personalistic. So Brookfield said, well, you can add the personal. You know, what does it mean for me individually? Um, and you could start to acknowledge emotions and your own story. That was okay. So that was a move across. Then you've got Moon, John Cohen and others who talk about the critical reflection. Let's really get into those emancipatory statements, which mean, you know, we're going to free our thinking by delving deeply and critiquing everything we think about. So this has been a progression, but that's still all cognitive. And now I'm saying, but there sometimes we want to express the inexpressible. How do we do that? Well, this is the question. <laughs> this is the question. So, you know, it's almost this childlike rationality. You know, we use art to liberate our thoughts. And so with a, a wonderful band of colleagues, I've been working and testing out, researching different ways of doing things for a decade now. And that includes, based on or informed by the arts, how could we use photography? How could we use poetry for reflection? Let's op offer options. How can we use artwork? How can we use our imagination and creativity in general? And it's very powerful. It works. I use it with my students, my fellow academics, constantly. What, what, what does that look like in the classroom, though? Can you talk us through something that we might be able to kind of um, uh, relate to or follow? I My personal practice is that in any class, I would always allow five minutes for reflection because the one thing that many people say to me is we're very busy we've got a lot of content to cover in our classes we don't have time for this and so with my band of colleagues we're called our reflection for learning circle we developed many many reflective practices that you can do in five minutes or less all right that sounds good you can incorporate them really easily that way exactly so you're acknowledging and that they're valuable by the sounds of it. You know, they are not only a thing, but they're actually worthwhile. And here we've got options for you that are, don't take much time. Exactly. 
And so we did, we, we, we go gently, we get, we start by getting people to write things. There's a very traditional approach called a minute paper where, you know, in one minute, what have you learnt? What do you still ask? What do you, do you still have questions about? What do you need to clarify? Um, and that's a great exercise. I've got stories to tell you about that, but maybe another time. Wonderful. And I get my students to fill it in and I fill it in at the same time. And it's the compare and contrast. Are you on the same page or not? Have your students learn? But on a more creative level, I've got lots of favourites. I've got a fortune cookie okay. example. Tell us how that works. I, When I'm face-to-face, -face, I give my class, my participants, my work colleagues a fortune cookie or in online, I give them a cyber cookie. And... Whatever I'm teaching, whatever your topic is on the day, they open the cookie. Most people like it because they get to eat it. And they read the fortune and they have to link. This is a reflective activity. What the fortune says to what they have learnt about in the classroom that day. All right. That's kind of from left field. And most people can do it. And they often come up with very deep, well-connected reflections that summarise their key learnings, you know, those take-home messages from the day. It's quick and easy and it's wonderful. I get them to imagine a teacup. Oh, yes. I, you, okay. you were mentioning that uh, recently, last time we spoke. What happens in that? I, I have done that in, I've been invited to do, say, a lecture to 250 business students on reflection because a lecturer believed reflection works. And I asked 250 students to imagine a teacup. Will we do it now? You sure? Yes. Guide me. Imagine a teacup. So could you do this, please, Mark? Okay, yes. So you can ask people to close their eyes only if they're comfortable with it because some people, they're not comfortable doing that. And I imagine a teacup. Then I ask you to pick up a teaspoon and tap. In our mind, you tea. mean, but I'm imagining. It's all imagining. And then tap your teacup with your spoon. Once you've done that, take the spoon and rest it on top of the teacup. And that's the exercise. And then I go and ask the students, and if you're in a lecture of 250, they, you can poll, they can put their responses in a poll, or you can just ask them, what did your teacup look like? What did yours look like, Mark? Um, it was like a uh, flat style with all flowers over it, like a, um, not a mug, like a kind of, I don't know okay. how you describe it, like a kind of um, dainty sort of teacup. And the spoon was kind of like a miniature little spoon that was kind of also dainty. What happened when you tapped your cup? Did you hear anything? Yep, it was like a um, it was sharp and clear kind of ding, almost like a bell. And when you, okay, when you rested your spoon, did you rest it facing up or down? Oh, I just assumed it was always going to rest downwards. Okay. And did you actually have tea in your cup? Oh, yeah, a little bit. It's kind of like a bit, um, the, the sort of tea leaves just from the previous cup. It was, it, was a, it was a used cup. It wasn't an empty cup. Okay, so if I do that exercise with 250 students and just survey a few of them, 
I will get different answers for what the teacup looked like. Many students will hear the, the, the spoon, the teaspoon hitting the cup. And I tell them, how can you hear anything? There is no cup, you know, yet some people sort of are hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the fascinating thing is all your descriptions of your cups are different. People have got different tea in it. Some people have got a rebels. They've got coffee in their cup and so forth. And the point I make then is how creative you are without even realising it. You've all got a strong sense of imagination. They've all participated in the activity. You're all unique in your imagination and very varied. And you can apply that equal imagination to your learning. Now, when I did this with 250 business students, a student at the end wrote, I came to this class and thought I was boring. I did the teacup. Now I know I am creative. <laughs> well. So a short three-minute exercise that transforms a student's thinking about their own ability to be creative. So these are sub-skills of reflective practice. I was going to ask, why is crea being creative important? Like is it, you know, um, what advantage is that to learning? Is it kind of? Well, if you think about the world of work today and that the world of learning is preparing you for contributing to the workforce, those higher order thinking skills, which are being able to reflect, to think critically and to be creative and apply are necessary for problem solving. And in a rapidly changing world, that's applicable not just for your personal life, but to every workplace situation. If you're learning, just how you approach your learning, you need to be creative um, as you progress through your learning in how you approach at a very fundamental level, your study patterns, how you undertake your assessment activities, um, and then much more deeply how you uh, maybe progress to research studies. And as I said, once you're in the workforce, you need those skills constantly. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting territory because these are often trouble, uh, not troublesome, but they're tricky to sometimes teach these sort of, like an attitude. It's kind of hard to sometimes get that um, happening. Whereas this sort of territory, so it's almost like acknowledging a shift in the student's attitude and and sort of, but in a structured way. It's not just a, a random kind of thing that then's lost or you kind of move on to something else. It's like it's formalised almost, which is interesting. And I, I guess I was going to, mm. I, I was thinking as well with a lot of universities do have those sort of, um, well, graduate attributes or that type of thing. They call them different things in different territories um they do and then now the corporate sector is definitely uh recognizing those transferable skills sometimes they're called soft skills um as being valuable professional skills professional skills yeah. i believe and my research is supporting that reflection supports student learning but we can't just expect our students or anyone to reflect it has to be also supported in turn. You know, we would talk about scaffolding and start with things that are familiar, 
the writing, and then you can move to the more creative elements. And when I run workshops, I often get people at the end of a workshop to vote on what's their favourite activity from the teacup to the cognitive writing. I have an activity that I haven't told you about called body parts. That's a fun one where, yes, we throw body parts, but it's all right, they're not real, they're foam models. And we use those as a prompt for reflection. And I went into this whole decade of research thinking that people, that is participants, my colleagues, my students would be hesitant and fearful of creative ways of reflecting. And in every workshop bar one over the years, the winner of reflective activities has always been the creative versions. Only once did the cognitive win in 10 years. Um, so I think there's great scope and that's an area that we just need to keep practicing and sharing with colleagues. In this episode, I chatted with Marina Harvey, an academic researcher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including a link to the publication, Reflection for Learning, a scholarly practice guide for educators. This guide features the intriguing reflection activities, Imagine a Teacup and Body Parts Debrief, among many others that are designed specifically for use in the classroom and take five minutes or less. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.